Welcome, and thank you for joining us on this week's segment of 22 Motivational Minutes with Marlo, where we connect and collaborate with experts in their industries, published authors, and fascinating people. And as a Chief Inspirational Officer, I'm focused on the development of people by unearthing their values, their talents, and their self-worth, otherwise known as that self-esteem factor, which is big in today's world. Because we know that people matter, self-worth matters, and time matters. When all of that aligns, everything works. So I want to confirm that we have Mr. Keld Jensen. Keld, are you out there with us right now? I am, certainly, yes. Welcome, welcome. And um, Keld is joining us today from the Arizona area. So um, thank you for, for your time. And, and what I'm going to do is, is share with people who we have with us on the line before we jump into um, all the beautiful things that I'm excited to talk to you about and that people need to hear from you. So Kill Jensen is a highly acclaimed and sought-after speaker with over 25 years of experience on the podium where he's consistently achieved the highest audience rankings. He's regarded as a thought leader in Europe, Asia, the Middle East, and North America, and, one is, and is one of the most influential authorities in the world today on negotiation as a leadership competency. So, um, wow, I know people are excited to hear from you. You are a contributor to Forbes. You've twice achieved the most um, highly viewed postings. You are an adjunct um, faculty member. And, um, wow, I just want to jump in. So let's go there for a minute, Kel. Tell us where you are um, a faculty member in the different universities that you work with in. Yeah, I am associated with the Thunderbird uh, School of Global Management uh, here in Glendale, Arizona. I am an associate professor at uh, Auburn University in Denmark and Europe, and I'm an associate professor at the Baltic Management Institute in the Baltics. And what I'm doing there is um, I am teaching, obviously, on negotiation, trust, and behavioral economics as part of their executive MBA programs. And uh, then I'm lucky to be able to utilize the research um, department as well to uh, do my stuff, my research into the whole universe of negotiation and collaboration as well. So, uh, And besides that, um, I'm guest lecturing on a, on a number of different universities around the world when, when time allows. So that... Um, that gives me the possibility of uh, meeting the whole world. Excellent. Excellent. Well, the thing that is going to be just so resonating for the folks out there that are listening to this podcast, you've recently come out with a new book, and it's called Smartnership. And it's the negotiation series, um, and it's transparency in negotiation. So talk to me. Um, well, share with us. What is this book all about? Why is it so important? Um, just to give you a little bit of a background, uh, originally I came from the IT business uh, back in Scandinavia where I was born and raised and um, I grew up the ranks in marketing and sales and ended up being chief executive officer of a public company in Stockholm, Sweden. And at one point in the 90s, I was sitting down and thinking, and uh, obviously I was doing a lot of negotiation, <clears throat> and I was thinking, you know, this is... Um, it, this is, it feels kind of wrong. I mean, we're just fighting each other constantly. It's, it's constantly a combat, and one is always winning at the expense of the other. And I couldn't really figure out why people in general told, told me that, you know, negotiation is a war. It's just warfare. We have to fight each other. We have to win. So um, I teamed up with, uh, with a Swede who uh, founded the company I'm heading today back in 1976, <laughs> Mr. Eva Und. He's actually called the father of negotiation in Scandinavia. And... Uh, he is, uh, was, unfortunately, he's not with us anymore, but he was a wonderful, wonderful gentleman because he actually started way before Harvard University, actually, the whole philosophy about working together in negotiation, where you can actually meet 
and win, but not win at the expense of the counterpart. And you can actually make sure that the, the counterpart wins, but not at your expense. So it, it's not a question about being unilateral, um, uh, showing unilateral concession and giving in. It's all about gaining something, but not having your counterpart pay for that. And I was so thrilled with that whole universe, so I actually uh, skipped my career in the IT business and, uh, and jumped into a completely new um, line of business, the, uh, the, uh, the this training business and, and, and consulting and advisory, where I've been ever since. And it is uh, exciting for me every week to see clients that are doing so much better, improving not only relationship, which obviously is nice, but for most businesses, even more importantly, improving their bottom line by changing their view on how to approach negotiation. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so talk about, um, you know, in the book you talk about how to be open without being naive. Mm. Yeah, and that's a, that's a wonderful question, Marlo. That is, that is a question I probably get from, from the majority of my clients because a lot of my clients come to me after we're working on a workshop or sitting in a real-life negotiation or whatever and saying, you know what, I, I agree with the concept, I do see it easier, but how do you find that balance be- between being more open and not becoming naive, uh, more naive, and how to avoid becoming more closed and thereby losing the potential of the value that could be utilized in this negotiation. Um, one of the key things, of the, the, the ways to, to, to handle that is actually create the rules of the game. And now I'm, I'm, I'm sharing something with you that a lot of people look at me in a weird way when I'm saying that, but you have to start negotiating or agree on how to negotiate before you actually start negotiating. And uh, I usually use the phrase that, you know, uh, nobody in the world have ever declared a standard, a worldwide standard on how to negotiate and relate to each other. So that means it could be just as different if you and I, Marlo, were about to negotiate for something. Um, you might perceive negotiations to be like a game of tennis. So you are sitting there with a racket ready to play <laughs> tennis, right? And right. I may perceive negotiation as chess. So I'm sitting there ready to play chess with a chessboard. And, you know, that's going to be a really ridiculous game, isn't it? You're trying to play tennis, and I'm, 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 I'm trying to play chess. And that is how differently people actually approach negotiation in this world, because there's no one way to, to negotiate, and there's no one right way to negotiate as well. So one of the first things you need to do, even before you start negotiating, is actually negotiate how to negotiate. You have to agree on rules of the game. How are we going to conduct this negotiation? Now, I believe that negotiation is a leadership um, a skill. So that's something that is required uh, for you to, to know. And it's, it's part of the, 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 the leadership strategy toolbox as well. So um, you need to understand what kind of strategy you're using in your negotiation. There's basically three in the world. There's zero-sum that I believe most people have heard of. That's the one where you win at the expense of the counterpart. Then there's partnership, which is a very abused word. I'll get back to that in a second. And then we have smartnership. And smartnership, obviously, besides being the title of my book, is also the approach where you are making sure that the counterpart are winning and you're winning at the same time by utilizing that value. Just getting back to why I'm calling uh, partnership one of the most abused words is that very often when I step into a new client, uh, I'm asking them what kind of negotiation strategy they got in their corporation. And um, those corporations or uh, governments or whatever I'm sitting with that actually has a strategy, a lot of them are saying, oh, well, we are definitely using partnership. And then when I get more in details and are looking in depth on what they're really doing, then I often conclude that what they're really doing is long-term zero-sum. But if they have a long-term relationship with a counterpart, 
uh, and it's your sum. Then they, for whatever reason, call it partnership. So it's kind of fun, and that, that's the reason I call it one of the most abused words, because partnership actually means something else than just a long-term zero-sum game. Wow, wow. Oh, right. You are just amazing to listen to. Anybody that is going into a negotiation, and listen, I think that's on all platforms, right? We're negotiating mm. not only in business but in life on many oh, different yeah. levels. And so you relate, and we talk about, you know, um, just how to approach it. One of the things that um, is there, so you mentioned also in your book, to choose the right negotiation method for the situation, but also think mm. that there's really not one way. Can you take mm. us there for just a minute? Sure. Through negotiation um, methods. Oh, absolutely. Just to give a general idea how many negotiations the average person I having per year, I'm always asking that when I'm, when I'm doing a keynote. And I'm often asking the audience, how many negotiations do you believe you have per year? And I could just be asking out of the people listening to, 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 to this broadcast here. And so how many of you would believe that you have 100 negotiations per year? You know, when I'm asking that to an audience, almost everybody raised their hands. Then I'm raising numbers and saying, how many of you believe you have more than 1,000 negotiations per year? Now some drop, drop, drop out, but still we have a reasonable amount of people who have their hands up. Then I usually raise a number even more saying, how many of you believe you have more than 5,000 negotiations per year? Now there's only a limited amount of people left. And then I perhaps go all the way up to 7,000 and say, how many of you believe you have 7,000 negotiations per year? Now there's nobody left. And then I, I reveal what every study on the face of the globe shows, and that is that the average person who basically don't even believe their negotiation, that they are doing any negotiation in their business life is actually having between eight to 10,000 negotiations per year. So if you divide that by 365 days, that is a lot of negotiations every single day. So you're so right, Milo. Negotiation is so much more than just getting to the office and calling a supplier or calling a client. Negotiation is with your spouse, your colleagues, uh, your kids, your management, the board. Basically, everybody where there is an interest to be shared or where you want somebody else to do something for you or somebody else wants something that you can do for them. Uh, so up to 80% of all communication between individuals can actually be categorized as a kind of negotiation. So it takes up so much space in our life. And unfortunately, a lot of people what are calling consciously incompetent. They don't really know that they can't do it. Um, so they're just kind of just floating along. Back to your question, Marlo. Uh, the different approaches. Well, the different strategy approaches into negotiation is the one I just mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago. That is the partnership, the partnership, or the zero sum. Uh, besides that, then we're talking about we basically have five different negotiation styles. And in negotiation styles, we have people who like to collaborate. That means working together. Typically, people choosing partnership or partnership strategy in approaching negotiation. Then we have a delaying tactics. That is basically people who are using or abusing time as part of the negotiation. Um, then we have concessions, and that is people that basically just gives in, um, just give away what, whatever they can. They are sometimes afraid of confrontation. Then we have people that are looking into doing compromises, and unfortunately, a lot of people think that compromise is the right way out of a negotiation, which is it, it is certainly not. And the last of the five different styles we do have is combative behavior. And combative behavior is kind of the natural approach into zero-sum. And um, as I said earlier, there's a certain amount of negotiators out there who feel that combative behavior is the right approach. And funny enough, Marlo, especially 
the higher ranking people might have and the bigger corporation they might be in. Strangely enough, there seems to be an increased tendency to use competitive behavior. And, and that puzzles me often because I'm thinking if you're sitting in a strong position, if you're sitting in a major corporation that has all the capital and power and market share and influence you need in the world, there's no need to be competitive because you have the power already. So why not just be humble and open and, and try to help your counterpart? But that seems to be a misunderstanding generally in the world. So, yeah. Excellent. Okay, so um, a question just to, before we segue into the next thing about trust, and that really I think is a cornerstone of the conversation today is, is understanding trust and how you see it play in the world. But to circle back around, is there, of the varieties you mentioned, Keld, is there one that you find that happens the most, the style of negotiation that, that you find the most, mm. the type of person? Yes, um, I'm, I'm sad to report that I do find that combat is a widespread style, um, especially I would say when the crisis hit, hit us in the Western world, 2008, 2009, I saw an explosive increase in competitive behavior. Because I, I, I think, Marla, we all know the expression that the pressure creates counter-pressure, right? So that means that when people are under pressure, um, whether they are financially under pressure or time-wise under pressure or under pressure from their executive or management or whatever, uh, they seem to, to counter-react, you know, and that is, for whatever reason, awful pressure. That's just human psychology. Um, sorry. So that it creates the risk that a lot of people who are in tough spots, they tend to pick competitive behavior. And competitive behavior is a very easy style as well. It just comes natural to a lot of us. I think it's, it's way back to cave people. I mean, when we were in danger, what, what did we do? It was, it was fight or flight, wasn't it? So, I mean, if we are stressed, we either go into comeback or we go into concession, as we call it in, in, in the, in the, in the uh, negotiation world. So, unfortunately, um, I would say that competitive behavior is very dominant. Um, wow. Uh, Thank God, I would say, if I just could add one more thing, that is I do see an increasing amount of corporations and individuals around the world who um, get the idea that we can actually become and create more profit by using a different approach than competitive behavior. Excellent. Wow. And it's boy, how disheartening to hear that that is one of the, the stand-tall approaches is to be combative. So let's talk, let's leverage now into the factor of trust. So you talk about being combative in the you know, in negotiations, how does trust play a factor into all of this when you're negotiating? Um, yeah, that's a wonderful question. Trust, trust is the foundation. Um, it's kind of funny. When, when I started this whole um, trip, travel, uh, in, 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 in the 19s, I, I, I thought that <clears throat> if we were able to educate, <clears throat> if we were able to educate um people and get the knowledge within negotiations, we would help them become successful. And what happened was about 10 years later, we could conclude that, hey, that, that wasn't actually enough. Um, it was just it was just weird. And, and, and we thought, wow, that, that is strange that, you know, it, 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 it's not enough. It's not really generating the success they need. Um, so the next step we actually uh, identified very clearly was that they were lacking communication skills. So we suddenly discovered that it's not enough that you have the toolbox in into how to negotiate. You also need how, how to communicate efficiently. And uh, that went on for some years, and then we did a, a study again, and, and unfortunately we concluded that, hey, wow, they were still not reaching the perfect level. They were still not completely, you know, achieving that success that was possible to, to gain. 
So we did a lot of research, and then we, we actually discovered that the lack of trust was the key thing. So we should actually reverse this pyramid and say, you know what, trust is, is the first thing that we can do even before we start communication, even before we, uh, that, that we actually start to create any kind of outcome of a possible negotiation. So we need to understand the importance of trust. Now, <clears throat> one of the reasons, one of the reasons it, it's one of my cornerstones is that six, seven years ago now, um, I woke up one morning and I had a weird stomach sensation. I felt that trust has dropped in the Western world. I felt that you and I, Marla, trusted each other less than we did 20 years ago. I felt that two companies trusted each other less than they did 10 years ago. I just felt that trust in the Western world in general was lower than ever before. So I teamed up with the World Economic Forum in Switzerland, and um, I asked them to go out and do a study. They did. And they came back and unfortunately agreed with, with my feeling. They came back after studying 20,000 people in 15 different countries and agreed with me, and they even managed to put a number on it. And they said trust has dropped in the Western world by 46% in the last 10 years and was 54% in the last 20 years. Now, some of the listeners out there might be sitting there thinking, um, and so what? But, but this is actually a real huge disaster because, listen very carefully, if we have a very high level of trust in any kind of relationship, our transactional cost will go down and our profit will go up. If we have a very low level of trust in any kind of relationship, our transactional cost will go up and our profit will go down. And I've seen that in every single negotiation throughout my career. Where we have a high level of trust, both parties simply make more money because transactional costs are lower. But if we don't trust each other, we need lawyers and accountants and contracts and we can't open up and there's no transparency and whatever. So we may actually reach an agreement. We may sign a contract. But the profit and the outcome for both parties is just way worse than it is if we had a high level of trust. Absolutely. Now, this is interesting, too, because, Keldas, you and I were getting to know each other. One, um, throughout that conversation, I want to take people to, you know, like you've seen and witnessed that we used to show up to the table with like six pages in a document mm. to negotiate mm. with. And then you yeah. say, you know, years later, it's, it's up to 312 pages. Mm. Talk to us about that and and. And this topic of trust. I mean, why why have we had to remove ourselves so much and and put so many other things in the way of negotiating? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's 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 actually kind of funny that that's that's why I'm laughing because I'm just thinking back. I I started my my career in the, in the IT business with the, with Xerox, and I was I was selling high volume printers, uh, printers that had a price tag of about two hundred thousand dollars in those days. And and the contract we used in those days were about five or six pages. That was it. And then, as you were saying, Marlo, then, then we would be selling a, a printer at a price of $200,000. I was in connection with one of my books. I was visiting Xerox again. And uh, funny enough, <clears throat> obviously, they're still selling the high-volume printers. And uh, the price tag, funny enough, is still around $200,000. Obviously, the, the technology is way more advanced now than it was then. But um, it's basically the same product, and it's basically the same price. And then I was asking Sirius, could I please have a look at the contract you're using today to sell that same product, basically as I was selling that many years ago? And uh, you name, you, you know, they came out with seven binders. So what we were doing in five or six or seven pages then were now turned into seven binders just full of paperwork. So that was just the contract and the volume of contracts. And um, obviously, there's a lot of different answers why this has happened, but. One of the key answers is that, again, back to what we just talked about, trust has dropped. So 
the less trust we have, the more we spend money on contract and securing clauses and involving attorneys and lawyers and, and just making sure that we're not being abused or, or, or you know, that everything is, is, is actually going right. So it's, it's, it's a key thing to understand that the bigger the contract, that we're not actually generating success out of that. There was a very interesting book published uh, here in the U.S. a couple of years ago. I would recommend everybody to buy that, called Brainfluence. And um, it's a book that was published by Neuro, uh, Neuroscience Institute. And what they actually discovered in one of the researches is that the bigger the contract and the more the contract rely on law, the worse the relationship uh, is between the two parties and the worse is the financial outcome. So they're doing worse. Um, the opposite also, or this organization also concluded that the smaller the contract might be and the less it is actually based on law, uh, the bigger, the, the, the better the relationship might be between the two parties and the more profit both of them are gaining. And this is actually a very uh, impressive study that they did that they have you know, created a really good documentation on the outcome. So, um, and it's funny when I'm out talking to clients, Marlo, and I'm, I'm doing my, my speaking, that in the beginning, I can see people are thinking, well, this trusting is like a softy, softy thing. But, you know, when, when we've been working just 30 or 40 minutes, everybody get it. It's, it's a hardcore tool that you can utilize actually to become more successful. So I call this concept trust currency because trust currency is basically the combination of the emotion trust plus the financial outcome. So we can actually put a price tag on trust as well. Wow. 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 I just, I mean, it's just mind-blowing to listen to you. You're very educated on this topic, obviously. I mean, this is the, the purpose and, and the platform that you share for so many people. And that's why this book is so important for, for anyone who's out there and connecting. I mean, you're talking about emotion. You're talking about being strategic and how you approach it and, um, and how it all comes together. And I know that your book, Smartnership, is designed to be a quick read that equips um, the corporate leaders to respond to both internal and external challenges, and it's the third road will change the way that business people solve problems, and we're all solving problems, and I think that's why it's so important to for people to add this to their resource and their, their tools. So on a closing note here, um, what's probably the most important message that you'd like to leave us off with today, Kel, as you talk about negotiations and trust and, and the value that it brings? I think a closing closing comment would be that we need to understand that trust in negotiations start with ourselves. I meet a lot of my clients or audience who come to me and, and tell me that I get it, trust is important. Um, how do I change the world? How can I make other people trust more? And I say, well, you can't. You know, I think we can all agree that changing other people is really, really, really hard. Um, there's only one person on the face of the globe that, that we might be able to change. That's even hard. And, and who do you think that might be? Well, that's, that's yourself, right? So right. we have to change our own behavior. We have to start trusting other people without becoming naive. We have to start showing trust, and we have to start focusing on trust as well. Um, and then the second thing I would say, trust in connection with smartnership, you know, utilizing that potential of value that could be up to 40 to 42% that is actually lost between the two parties, utilizing that based uh, on trust, which is to create remarkable results for everybody in negotiations. 
Wow. Wow. What a great. Yes. I'm, I'm excited to uh, have people hear about this today. So as we close, I'm very grateful for your time and your collaboration on this topic today and around negotiations and trust. So to learn more about Kelb Jensen, you can simply visit our website at marlohiggins.com where you can learn how to obtain Kelb's books, connect to his resources, and possibly add him to your circle of influence. Well, thank you, Kel, for joining us today. And we invite you to share this podcast with others. And thank you in advance for that partnership. So today I want to close as your host and your Chief Inspirational Officer, Marlo Higgins. Thank you for your time and um, and look forward to um, to learning more about Kel and what he has to offer. So thank you for your time, Kel. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.